Hi everyone, this is Christian Weatherford. And this is Ellen Weatherford. And you're listening to Just the Zoo of Us, a podcast about animals where we talk about those animals mm-hmm. and give those animals numbers. <laughs> like phone numbers or? Here's my digits. <laughs> <laughs> the numbers correlate to ratings that we have given the animals, yes. right? That's what you mean, right? Yes. Thank you. We are not zoological experts, barely an expert of speaking at the moment. You're doing your best. <laughs> You're doing great. I'm so proud of you. However, we do a lot of research and we try our best to make sure we are presenting information from trustworthy sources. Yeah, we do. We put a lot of work into our research and make sure that it is good and that we're not just making things up out of thin air. <laughs> so this past week's animal poll was between the pika and the tenric. Mm-hmm. It was contentious. It was. It was really close. Like some were doing it on purpose again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop putting them up in the Facebook group. <laughs> Make them go to Twitter. That'll show them. <laughs> yeah, because the Twitter folks know how to behave. <laughs> it was still close, though. It was. So speaking of, the winner of that was the pika. And we've already hit a point of contention here because I've always said pika. Yep. I did too prior to researching, but pretty much every spoken scientist I could find talking about it pronounces it pica. So that's what I'm going to go with. I disagree, but it's not my segment. So (laughs) I have no power over this. I tend to listen to the folks that study the thing. But anyway, so pica actually describes a whole genus. Um, So I just decided to go with the what's known as the type species. Oh, the type species? Yes. What does that mean? I'll go into more on that when we start to talk about taxonomy. Okay, I can be patient. So I went with the type species, which for the pica is the Dorian pica, scientific name Okatona dorica. Okatona? Yes. That's very catchy. I like that. O-C-H-O-T-O-N-A. I had to make sure that was how it was pronounced. Because <laughs> had I not, I would have definitely pronounced that Ocho Tona. <laughs> you had to do a lot of pronunciation research for this yeah, episode, didn't you? I did. I sure did. <laughs> so yeah, like we mentioned, I'll be pronouncing it Pika, which is spelled P-I-K-A. It is pronounced the same as the word Pika, P-I-C-A which is a unit of type size, but also the name of a disorder where one desires to eat things that don't provide nutrition. Same pronunciation, different different. words. Don't be worried. I will be talking about the animal here on out. Uh, This species, I say species, but pica was also submitted uh, outside of the poll by Amy Pate and Abigail Cornett. Thank you both. Thank you. And I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, found at animaldiversity.org. So let's talk about what these little dudes look like. It's pretty good, right? Yeah, they're tiny and furry. Um, round? A little, a little round. They have round features, particularly their ears are round. Ooh, um, they're so cute. One might even describe them as rodent-like. Oh, but they're not rodents. They're not rodents. Ooh, the plot thickens. <laughs> but you can definitely see the similarity there. Uh, they don't have much of a tail to speak of, and they're kind of a yellowish color. So lengthwise, they range from 170 to 180 millimeters, which is equivalent to 6.69, nice, to nice. 8.66 inches. That's small. Yes. That's little. It is little. Uh, let me get this out of the way now. Not very many similarities to Pikachu. 
Yeah, okay. So I've been specifically asked this question before. Uh, Well, not necessarily asked, but people will say, did you know that Pikachu is actually based on this real animal called the Pika? It's not true. (laughs) I get why people would think that because of Pikachu containing the same letters. That is that name. And also because Pikachu has the long ears. Pikas don't have long ears, though. Well. They have brown short years <laughs> I, I guess like i get it conceptually where they're going with that like yes it looks kind of like what pikachu is really based on which is a mouse or like a squirrel or just like a general rodent but that's not where pikachu got its name from pika is a japanese onomatopoeia that refers to the sound that something makes when it is shining or sparkling or something like that. The implication meaning like it is like sparks from the lightning that Pikachu produces. And then the Chu part of the name is another Japanese onomatopoeia that refers to the sound that a mouse or a squirrel would make. It's like a rodent's sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it means like shiny squeak. Yep. So has nothing to do with the animal, (laughs) though I get why you would think it does. It doesn't. (laughs) And I feel my pronunciation of pika only furthers that truth. (laughs) (laughs) Were you just trying to like really put your foot down on the Pikachu issue? This is the hill. (laughs) (laughs) Are you prepared to die here? (laughs) So continuing on, mass-wise, they are 40 to 170 grams, which is equivalent to 4.93 to 5.99 ounces. Oh my gosh, that's really small. Yeah, they're not big. They're so little. Yep. And here's where this particular species is found. So this species is found on the steppes and the semi-deserts of Russia, China, and Mongolia. So otherwise, there are other species of pikas that are also found in North America, in the more mountainous regions. Ah, darn. Yeah. We don't live in mountainous regions. quite the opposite. No. So I didn't know this. I didn't know what steppes were. And that's spelled S-T-E-P-P-E. And the Oxford Advanced American Dictionary defines a steppe as a large area of land with grass but few trees, especially in Southeast Europe and Siberia. For people that might be laughing at us for not having enough geographical knowledge to know what steppes are, we live in Florida. (laughs) Our current elevation is like 10 feet above sea level. We Mm. don't know what steppes are. Please don't make fun of us for not knowing these things. So to continue on with that thought, most of these guys are found in high altitudes over 3,000 meters. Goodness. They're way up there, huh? Mm -hmm. So they belong to the taxonomic family Okotonidae, which only has one genus, which is theirs, the Okotona. So I want to talk about some of their evolutionary relatives. They belong to the same order as rabbits and hares. Okay. Yep. Which is the Lagomorpha, is the name of that order. Are they not rodents? They are not rodents. Interesting. I but didn't know that. they're a little bit closely related because rodents are in a different order called Rodentia. And both of those orders make up the clade of gliars. Gliars? Yes. So a pika is more closely related to rabbits and hares, but still pretty closely related to rodents. Not Just not as closely related as rabbits and hares. Okay, I get what yeah. you're going for. Yep. I feel you. Uh, so one thing that differentiates lagomorphs from rodents is that lagomorphs have four incisors in their upper jaw instead of two. Extra chompers. Yep. For doing more chomping. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, earlier I mentioned type species. 
Yes, I do want to know what this is. Dictionary.com says the species of a genus that is regarded as the best example of the generic characters of the genus, the species from which a genus was originally named is the type species. Oh, it's the the OG. Yeah, yeah. Original genus. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It was the best I could do on short notice. I'm sorry. (laughs) So having no real experience with pikas at all prior to doing this research i that that seemed like as good as any to go with (laughs) that's a great reason (laughs) to pick it (laughs) so there's around 30 species of pikas two of them are in north america Um, this one like i said is often the the russia china mongolia area we need to make a point to try to go find some in that part of the world or like well (laughs) that would be less convenient Sure, we could. <laughs> We're here for your small lagomorphs. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing else. You show me your rabbits and we will go home. <laughs> Miss me with your culture and tourism. <laughs> so, uh, starting off with our first category of effectiveness, and those who, who are joining us for the first time, effectiveness describes physical attributes that help them do the things that they need to do. And for the Dorian Pika, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. That's a good bunny. Yeah. I'm going to keep calling them bunnies. It's not bunny. <laughs> I know it's not. Someone's <laughs> going to get really mad at me. So the first and biggest thing I want to talk about with these guys is how their digestion works. So just a heads up, <laughs> this is going to be a... Hmm. This is going to be a whole poop-themed episode. Yeah. There's going to be lots of poop talk in this episode. So for those of you who are familiar with how rabbits digest food... I'm not, Christian. Well, (laughs) for our listeners that do, you know what to expect. Because being in the same family, or I should say order... Being cousins of rabbits. Yes. They have very similar, if not the same, digestion. Okay. All I know about their digestion is that they make little poop pellets. Yes. That's That's all I got. Well, that's the whole thing. Wrap it up. Nope. (laughs) I was about to be like, you really hyped that up (laughs) for nothing. So first of all, these little guys are herbivores. So they eat lots of fibrous plants. So like grasses, weeds, that kind of thing. Hay. Yeah. I I know that when you have a pet bunny, you're supposed to feed it lots of hay. Yeah. So they practice something that's called seekatrophy. Seek a trophy? Yes. Okay, the trophy part I'm familiar with. This is the part of the word that means eats that thing. Yes. What is the seek a part? That is spelled, well, there's two different spellings. So oh. one is C-A-E-C-O-T-R-O-P-H-Y or C-E. Okay. Yeah. So that Follow. goes that goes with that, with the, the, the A and E we don't see very often in American <laughs> English. Oh, sure. <laughs> we skipped that one. <laughs> So let's talk about, I want to back it up a little bit, talk about some digestive uh, anatomy, and I'll use humans as an example. Okay. So the root of this word is related to the organ called the cecum, which is part of the digestive system. According to Britannica.com, in humans, the cecum is the first part of the large intestine, coming from the small intestine, that the appendix is also attached to. Its main purpose in humans is to absorb fluids and salts and to mix contents with mucus. Okay, let's do so, some nasty stuff. So just a little quick review of digestive system. It's mouth, esophagus, your throat, stomach, small intestines, large intestines, colon, and then... Your it, butt. Yes. <laughs> you, we can say butt, I think. <laughs> so that's the full thing, right, that, that we're familiar with as humans. Um, but here's where it's different. And legomorphs, like the pica and rabbits, 
The cecum is enlarged. It's really big and is a part of the digestive system where bacteria can break down cellulose, which is the part of plant matter that makes it hard to digest. Oh. Yep. So they're really good at digesting that stuff? Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> yep. So what happens here is the food goes to the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestines, the large intestine, and then the colon, but some of the food is then forced back into the cecum. One more lap. <laughs> we got a victory lap. So there it's broken down by bacterial fermentation. Oh. And at this point, the food, which I'm putting in quotes I for our see listeners. your air quotes. I know. <laughs> so the food is now known as a cecotrope. And passes through the colon and then the anus and is limited by the, eliminated by the animal. That's the pooping part. Yes. So these animals have two different types of poop. So they have the regular poop, which is like very fibrous and dry. And then they have these cecotropes, which are, uh, have a higher moisture content and they actually are a little glossy. <laughs> For the lack of a better comparison, they kind of look like chocolate covered raisins. Oh, come on. <laughs> Stop. I love those. <laughs> so here's where the differentiation uh, really matters. So one, the regular poop, it's just regular poop. It's gone. They, they do that outside their burrows and such. But here's what they do. The cecotropes, they then ingest those. I didn't want you to say that they did anything with it. <laughs> I didn't want them to do anything with it. I wanted them to leave it alone. <laughs> nope, they eat it. No. Pretty much immediately. <gasps> Oh, they also like chocolate-covered raisins. <laughs> Same hat. So they eat these cecotropes, and that lets them digest them again like to get the nutrients that they would have missed the first time through. I suppose there's value in being thorough. <laughs> now, other animals have similar processes, like cows with, I think it's called chewing cud. Yeah, right? But, but it's different. That's different. <laughs> Same concept, but just in different points of the digestive process. Yeah, because the cud is like puked back up, sort mm -hmm. of, right? Right. This has already made it. All it was it was home long. free. It was like it was released <laughs> into the wild, and then the pica was like, nope. Actually, well, the, let me get that back. Well, the important part is that bacteria fermentation because it's it's doing chemical reactions in there to to make it easier to digest on its second pass through. Okay. Yeah. So really peculiar for animals like us, the way we've evolved our own digestive system, but interesting still. That's a word that <laughs> you could use for it. Yeah, interesting. Sure. There are other animals that do this too, some rodents, for example. A lot of people, I think, assume that maybe like invertebrates and like bugs and creepy crawlies and stuff are like the grossest animals. <laughs> I think this is a great example of why they are definitely not. You'd be nice to these <laughs> lagomorphs. I didn't think they were going to be this nasty. <laughs> But yeah, this is like a very important thing for animals like rabbits and pikas to do. So uh, someone who is not familiar with this process might be like, oh, no, what is my animal doing? They shouldn't be doing that. Uh, right. Like if your dog eats <laughs> its poop, that's like a whole thing. Yeah, not great. But with these kind of animals, it's, it's actually pretty much required. Huh. Yep. Does this allow them to like not have to eat as much food? It lets them get nutrients and vitamins that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get out of their food. Okay. Yeah. 
At least it's doing something. <laughs> and it's not just a one-time thing. So the This food could make a couple trips th- through. Stop. <laughs> Good for their efficiency mm-hmm. that they can like squeeze every last drop of well, possible nutrients out of a small amount of food. Well, it's interesting, too, because they, they know the difference before it comes out of them so like they'll release the regular feces outside of their burrow like away from the burrow Mm -hmm. but when it's the cecotropes they'll do that in their burrow because they're pretty much going to eat them immediately oh okay (laughs) all right so that's all i'm going to talk about that thank you ellen has had enough (laughs) (laughs) we've been talking about poop for like 10 minutes yeah So my only other effectiveness point is their typical lifespan is only around 2.3 years. This is, I think, not uncommon for animals of this size, right? right? Mammals of this size, I should say. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like rodents tend to live, you know, only a couple years, maybe. Mm -hmm. So moving on to our second category of ingenuity. So these are things that are smart or witty. um, Clever. Yeah. Strategic. Yep. I'm going to give a 7 out of 10. So my first point is they practice, or I should say, they are facultatively monogamous. Mm, there was a qualifier on the monogamous bit. Yes. So this is opposed to obligate monogamy. Okay. So basically what it comes down to, it, the males mate with one female, not because they choose to, but because <laughs> of the scarcity of females. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. I thought that was interesting. That's a little bit. I'm sure some folks could relate to that. (laughs) I won't say anything more about that. My next point about ingenuity is their communication. So they rely heavily on hearing and they communicate using vocal signals. And they'll even repeat alarms heard from others. Oh. Yeah. So they're like signal boosting. Mm -hmm. I like that. They're really high-pitched squeaks. Oh, can I hear it? Don't have that octave. Just don't. Get in that falsetto, Christian. You know you got it in you. I don't. Sorry, my chair might. <laughs> if you, <laughs> why don't you just like do it in your normal voice, and then later on when I'm editing this, I'll just change your pitch. Uh-huh. I'll oh, just he- pitch you up really high. Oh, here you go. Uh, squeaker makes squeaking. Stop time. it. <laughs> I meant for real. <laughs> Use that edit magic, baby. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. My next point is, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but they make burrows. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's To neat. poop in and then eat the poop. live and birth and some other things. Yeah, but you said pooping first. <laughs> I did. So unlike other mammals of their size and also where they're found, they do not hibernate. None. None. Zero hibernating. They're just on the go at all yeah. times. So instead, what they do is they store food in food chambers or near the entrance of their burrows. So they'll do this in one way by they'll create their own hay piles. So they do this by cutting grasses at the root and then piling them so that the cut ends point up, which helps them dry. Huh. That's very clever. Yep. So they'll make little hay piles for themselves to eat during the winter. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Uh, They are predated by things like eagles, owls, polecats, which I've just learned the term of. Which is polecat? <laughs> uh, ferrets, basically. <laughs> ferrets can be described as a domesticated polecat. That's really funny. <laughs> Ferret is just a long, long boy. <laughs> and also foxes. So for those maybe not familiar with the terminology, predated means eaten or hunted by. 
their main defense against these predators is basically just being cautious. Oh. <laughs> like they'll be really careful and before they fully exit their burrow, they'll stay still and listen. They'll use those big ears of theirs to listen. They're very cute also. That has to give them some defensive like <laughs> maybe just, to humans but. yeah this yeah and that's a good segue into our final category of aesthetics fairly exp- self-explanatory how cute they are I'm giving an eight out of ten yeah they're cute they got round ears they're furry they're just generally round their face yeah. is really good it's like a bunny with less exaggerated features it's bunny light uh, <laughs> it's a diet bunny although another difference they don't hop around and stuff like bunnies do oh yeah I guess they don't have those long feet, do they? Yeah, they don't have that same kind of build as rabbits and hares do. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Something I thought was interesting that we don't see very often is there's no sexual dimorphism, which is also known as sexual monomorphism. Oh. So there's no uh, big difference between the sexes. Like, uh, generally we'll see a difference in size or maybe uh, coloration, that kind of thing. But no. Samesies. Yep. Twinsies. <laughs> In the summer, their fur is yellowish straw gray with their white bellies. And in winter, the colors are lighter and the fur is longer and more dense, including around the paws and ears. Oh, yep. They got little snowshoes (laughs) and earmuffs. Yep, I love that. And my only miscellaneous info really is about their conservation status, which is of least concern with the IUCN. They're doing good. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I like them. Good little squeakers. I like them. <laughs> um, have you seen the pictures on the internet of them carrying around little flowers? Uh, maybe. maybe. There's just they like part of their like gathering food and stuff for their burrows is like sometimes you'll see them carrying around little. It looks like little bouquets because they've gathered up like grasses and stuff that have flowers in yeah. them. So you see them running around with like, it looks like a little bouquet of flowers. It's really cute. That's weird though. The the videos I saw were pretty much all about one of the two species that are in North America. Maybe it's easier to get to. Maybe. So that's the pika. Excellent. Thank you, baby. No problem. We are able to continue making just the zoo of us and donate our ad revenue to wildlife conservation because of support from our patrons on Patreon. So this month, I'd like to thank Jacob Jones, April Kamik, Brianna Feinberg, Gina Dimitri, Jacob Schick, Vikram Baliga, Brandon Everfolly, Britt Vickstrom, Dalton Weeks, Julie Gilson, Christina Sanders, Paul Chomo, Sarah Peterson, and the Jungle Gym Queen. Thank you so much, y'all. So baby, what animal do you bring this week? This week, I'll be talking about the North American giant millipede. Ah, the leggy one. Yes, the one with all of the legs. <laughs> also known as the iron worm. I like that. Have you ever heard them called this? No. I haven't either, but it was listed on a whole bunch of places as like another common name. I was like, I guess. That I like, sounds really cool. Yeah, I like that. I'm gonna now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scientific name is Narcius Americanus. Hmm. This was inspired by, there was an effort on social media called Invertifest. So it was like a whole thing where everyone was supposed to like post content related to invertebrates. So people were posting photos and art and all sorts of observations and information and cool stuff about all these different invertebrates. And so I was definitely inspired by that. I was like, I want to talk about my favorite invertebrate, which is the millipede. I'll say it. It's my favorite. I like them. 
They're great. I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, as you did. Also from the lab of Paul Merrick, who is a millipede expert at Virginia Tech's Department of Entomology from their website, which is millipedes.ento.vt.edu. That's quite the domain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also had some help on some of my fact checking from Derek Hennon, PhD in entomology at Virginia Tech. Um, he, he was very kind and answered some random questions I had on, <laughs> on Twitter. Very it was very nice to me and helped me with some of my fact checking. So. Awesome. If you are not very familiar with this millipede, the name giant millipede might make you think this is like the size of your arm, right? There are giant millipedes in Africa that are like the size of your arm. Sure. This isn't that big. They're not that huge. They say giant. They're like kind of big. It's all relative. Yeah. So they're up to (laughs) 10 centimeters or four inches long, which is really not, it's not that much, really. Big bug. I mean, sorry. Don't say. <laughs> You're gonna bring so much heat down on me. You're gonna get in so much trouble for this episode. So uh, they could be found throughout most of the United States, except for the very westernmost states. So you'll find them more along the east, and then kind of in the middle of the United States, mm-hmm. and also in the eastern parts of Canada. So you'll find them in North America along the eastern parts. Okay. Their taxonomic class is called Diplopoda. These are the millipedes. They have their own class. Huh. There are like 12,000 species of millipedes. Oh, that's fun. There's so many of them. So let's talk about centipedes and millipedes also, because I know probably a lot of people don't aren't super familiar with the difference between centipedes and millipedes. Um, so centipedes are not part of the Diplopoda class. They are in the class Chylopoda, which is both of those classes together make up the subphylum Myriapoda. Hmm. So they're like kind of close to each other, centipedes and millipedes, but they're different. So one of the biggest differences between centipedes and millipedes is that centipedes are predatory. So they hunt and eat other bugs. Okay. Millipedes don't. They're detritivores. Okay. So they don't eat other critters. They eat things like leaf litter and dead plants and stuff like that. Another difference is that centipedes only have one pair of legs per body segment. So they have those segmented bodies. Mm-hmm. And centipedes have one pair of legs per segment, but millipedes have two, which is actually where they got that name diplopoda. So diplo uh, means double, double-legged. Okay. Yeah. So you might already know that the names centipede and millipede refer to their number of legs, which is very many. So centipede comes from the Latin translation for hundred legs, and then millipede comes from the Latin for thousand legs. (laughs) That's an exaggeration. (laughs) It's not literally exactly true. But... It's not as much of an exaggeration as I thought it was. So there has never been a a millipede that has been recorded with a thousand feet. Sorry. It's not quite that many. Do you want to guess what the most number of legs on a millipede has been? I'm guessing around 600. You're pretty close. 750. Okay. That's the highest number of legs recorded on any animal. Huh. 750 legs, and that is on a type of millipede called Ilacme plenipus. It's a crazy-looking millipede. It's, like, white. It's really long and really skinny and is just all legs. (laughs) (laughs) Legs for days. (laughs) 
yes. <laughs> Quite literally. But I once I found out that there was one with 750 legs, I was like, was a thousand really that far off compared to like four or two like the rest of us? Well, how dare they not meet the expectations of the made up names <laughs> we gave to them? I know. <laughs> um, but so what's interesting about their legs is that throughout their lives, they will periodically molt as a lot of other arthropods and such do Mm -hmm. um and each time they molt they gain body segments and new pairs of legs so the longer and more leg having a millipede is (laughs) the older it is okay so as they as they get older they get more legs can you count their segments and take a guess at their age maybe (laughs) yeah pretty much So the last note before moving on is that there are pill millipedes, which look very similar to roly polies, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people call wood lice or pill bugs. Right. Pill millipedes are millipedes and they are part of the millipede family and they look a lot like roly polies, but roly polies are not millipedes. They are isopods. Okay. More closely related to crustaceans. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about roly polies. Yeah. If you're if you want to know more about roly polies, you can check out our episode on that. It was an earlier episode. But so yeah, it's interesting. It was it was it's a really good example of like super convergent evolution. Because mm-hmm. like pill millipedes and roly polies are like for me, the untrained eye, indistinguishable from each other. Sure. Like I could not tell them apart. I am not an expert, but I probably could not if you showed me two of them, I probably could not tell you which was which. <laughs> A pill millipede is just a really short millipede. So yeah, so this this giant millipede looks like you took a roly poly and just like accordioned it out. <laughs> just copy paste it. <laughs> looks like you clone stamped it <laughs> and just made it really long. A panoramic shot gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. Um, that factors into its its aesthetic score for me. Okay, don't worry. Um, But before we get to aesthetics, let's talk about effectiveness for the North American giant millipede. I give them a 7 out of 10. Okay. It's it's pretty good. Uh, So first I want to talk about their locomotion, how they're getting around. Mm -hmm. So each pair of those legs moves symmetrically. By that I mean both legs on either side of the body in that pair are lifting at the same time. Okay. The individual pairs move in this wave motion that mm-hmm. like rolls through the body. Um, and they're like ripples, right? So it's not just like one wave through the body. It's like many <laughs> waves of legs rippling down the body at the same time. And what I thought was really interesting that I had never really noticed until I looked at a bunch of up close videos of millipedes is that that wave of legs moves from the back of the body towards the head when they're walking forwards. I guess that makes sense. Right? Yeah. So when they can actually reverse and walk backwards and then the wave goes <laughs> in the other direction. And it's such that there's not just one wave at any given time. There's a couple, right? Because it's, it's many. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a it's like a very rapid like rippling motion. Yeah. I've always enjoyed watching it, and I think uh, my seventh grade science class. I think we they, they had like a pet really big red millipede. That was, really, yeah. <gasps> I bet that was really cool. It was. I would have loved to see that. Was it like 
like an African millipede, I like think one of the so, big ones. Although I think someone messed up when feeding all of the class's pets and it, <sighs> it didn't go good. Okay. They, they put crickets in there and then the crickets won. That's not what they eat. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So what's interesting about this like rippling leg effect that they have with all of these legs is that when they have so many points of contact with the surface beneath them, and also with all of their legs being really, really short and their body being so round and sort of squat almost, mm-hmm. it makes them really stable even on uneven surfaces. Okay. So they have so many points of contact with the ground that if the surface they're on is not stable, they can just keep on trucking no problem. Yeah. So this is great because they like to crawl around on like logs and dirt and dead leaves and stuff like that. So it makes them really good at getting around on unpredictable terrain. Also, having so many legs pushing against the ground at the same time, it gives them a lot of like forward thrust. Mm-hmm. They're like a like a steam engine coming through there. So it makes them really good at burrowing. So they can just like shove their heads <laughs> through the dirt, basically, and, and burrow into the dirt. So it makes them really good at stuff like that. What's cool is that the flexibility and the resilience of the style of walking has actually inspired designs for robots. Ooh. Yeah. So there are robots in design and in development that might someday be used to move through the human body. Ooh. Yeah, and they're called like Nilly robots. I don't like that. Because <laughs> they're like designed based on the legs of a millipede because the millipede's legs are so good for that. They're so huh. good for like moving through surfaces that aren't necessarily uniform. It sounds like something out of Jumanji. Well, the the reason for that is for them to carry things like medicine through the body, like drug delivery throughout the human body. How are we going to do it? Robot mm-hmm. millipede. Robot millipede. <laughs> what about a shot? No. <laughs> Robot. <laughs> so I thought it was cool. So the trade-off is that having all of these legs, it does make them very stable and very, you know, resilient, but it also makes them very slow. Centipedes can do this interesting thing where they can like undulate their body in such a way that it speeds them up. Yeah, it's a little... Yeah, they're quick. Centipedes can can get some speed. Millipedes cannot. They just are kind of trucking right along at their leisurely pace. So honestly, centipedes are a bit nightmare fuel. Yeah, there's a reason I chose not to talk about centipedes today. <laughs> okay, I will continue to not then. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to mention them. Our house is full of them, so like we have to come to terms with the centipedes. But The next thing for their effectiveness I wanted to talk about is their perception. So they mostly use their antenna to perceive their environment and navigate. So they sense things like odors, temperature, humidity, pheromones, all that sort of thing they, they perceive with their antenna. They do have eyes, hmm. but they're interesting eyes. So they have two patches on either side of their head mm-hmm. of ocelli, which we've talked about before. These are like very, very, very simple eyes. It's basically just a lens and that's it. It doesn't have retinas or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it just detects light, basically. And that's it. Like the absence or presence of light. But they have patches of these. So it's like a whole bunch of them clustered together hmm. on either side of the head. Where, you know, if you back up a little bit, it does kind of look like they have two compound eyes or two regular eyes 
on either side of their head. Mm. But when you get closer, you see that it's really just this sort of cluster of these very, very, very simple lens eyes. Okay. So they can see light and they can see movement, but not really images. So, so far I have deducted um, points for poor agility because they move so slow and also poor perception because they can't really see (laughs) anything. It's probably good that they don't move really fast when they can't see. They don't have to like, they're not chasing prey, right? So they don't have to run after prey, but there's so many things that eat them. (laughs) They have so many threats. So, like, they don't have a lot of options for evading predators. Well, they have some. I'm actually about to get into that right now. So, they have this hard exoskeleton all over their body, right? Like most arthropods do. Um, This provides it with some physical defenses, but they also have a chemical defense. Oh. Yeah. So, they secrete chemicals called benzoquinones. These are, like, kind of noxious or irritating chemicals. Oh, the... The bombardier beetle. Mm, okay. This is not to the same scale as a bombardier right. beetle. It's not as bad as that. Um, they're not as like concentrated, I think. Sure. It's just not a very strong chemical. So it doesn't really pose a threat to humans. If you have sensitive skin, you could get a chemical burn from it. Or if you have like an allergic reaction to it, then it could affect you more severely. Um, but for the most part, all you're going to get is maybe some, you might get some discoloration on your skin and like a mild irritation, hmm. um, but it's easily washed off with soap and water. Okay. They they really don't, they can't bite you. They can't sting you. They don't carry diseases. They're essentially completely harmless. Like you really don't need to worry about millipedes. So the irritant thing, is that something they control or is it just something they, they constantly like secrete? It's something that they can release when they're threatened. Okay. So most millipedes actually have some form of chemical defense uh, with varying intensity and also delivery mechanisms. Mm. So some of them can release hydrogen cyanide gas. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it is powerful enough to kill small animals. Wow. Yeah. So some of them are really going hard on this chemical weaponry. Some of them, their exoskeletons are coated in cyanide, which is interesting. Some of them can spray hydrochloric acid at their attackers, and that's like a spray. Yeah. It's like a, here you go, enjoy this. Um, the North American giant millipede cannot do any of that, though. <laughs> it, when If you pick it up and you're bothering it and it is clearly distressed, then it can like secrete this irritating chemical. If you're a human, though which I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. (laughs) You really don't have anything to worry about with a millipede. Ancient aliens. (laughs) Latest podcast demographic. (laughs) I wonder if Anchor's analytics will track that. (laughs) So they do face risk of drying out. Mm. And this drying out, like dying because of drying out, is called desiccation. So if you hear of of an animal being desiccated, it has dried out. This is why you'll find them in damp, sort of more humid, dark areas. And they also are nocturnal and only come out at night to avoid being dried out by the sun. Makes sense. Yep. So that's why you'll find them in the darker times of day and you'll find them in more like wet, humid places. That made sense to me why you won't find them in the west of the United States because it's drier over there. Would we find them in Florida? Yeah. I've found many. I have found very many. Yes. 
That was actually like a reason why I wanted to talk about them and why I love them so much because I found so many and I was always like really, really excited to find one and I have very fond memories of picking them up and playing with them. I wonder if maybe I've just never seen them or just didn't realize it. You probably have seen one and didn't really think much of it. Hmm. Especially because when they're younger, they're a lot smaller. Okay. So when you find them like dried out, they'll be in a they'll be in a little spiral. Yeah. So you've probably found like dead ones or something. Okay. But yeah, you find them. You just gotta look in like wet dirt at night, and there you will find them. Ah. <laughs> so moving on to ingenuity, uh, for the North American giant millipede, I could only give them a five out of ten. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I gave them some points. So the I gave them some points for this defensive behavior that they have where this is kind of their first line of defense if something is bothering them. When they're threatened, they curl up into a ball. So this hides its underbelly and protects kind of its like under parts mm-hmm. with the harder part of its body and sort of tries to cover up its weaker points with its armored exterior The problem with this is that larger predators, meaning pretty much anything bigger than them, just eat them anyway. And it's not really a problem. (laughs) Not an issue at all. Like, just chomp right through. It's not that big a deal. So the next thing I want to talk about for their ingenuity, for their behavior, is that when it's time to make baby millipedes, the female, she'll make herself a little nest out of puked up vegetation. So she will you know, eat up some vegetation and then puke it back out Mm -hmm. and use it to make a nest. Cute, kind of (laughs) gross. And then once she's ready, she lays between 50 to 100 eggs in her nest. And then she tenderly and lovingly swaddles each and every egg in a cocoon of dirt and poop. Oh, I know. She wraps it in her poo. (laughs) So each egg is encased into a ball of dirt and poop (laughs) okay which makes sense because the egg is bright white and if you have a bunch of bright white eggs laying on the dirt that's going to be very easy to see not that the mom would tell that they're white but that's fine (laughs) (laughs) well but you know like if they're if they're just sitting there on the ground you know they're gonna get eaten by predators the next thing that mom does is that she wraps her body around the eggs and she Hugs them until they hatch. How sweet. Isn't that sweet? Wait, does she survive? Yes, she's okay. fine. Okay. Yeah, so they the <laughs> she she wraps her body around the eggs and then they hatch. And then once they hatch, she just pieces out and leaves and moves along. Well, good. That seemed like a great opportunity to turn south. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of times you'll hear these horror stories of these animals that like go to great lengths to protect their children. And they're like, and that's when she dies. <laughs> no, this one, she's Roll fine. <laughs> <laughs> or like, uh, like you'll hear one was like, and then all the babies eat their mother. Like uh, something weird like that. No, she's fine. She moves on with her yeah, life and yeah. goes to make more baby millipedes. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you specifically to Derek Hennon for helping me with that. Cause I had seen, Some of the sources I was using, I don't know where this came from, but they said that this millipede only laid one egg at a time. Hmm. Yeah. And so I thought that was kind of (laughs) weird. And so I looked around the internet and I found pictures of millipedes in their nests with tons of eggs. And I was like, hey, what gives? Um, So I asked uh, Derek on Twitter uh hey what gives what's up with millipede eggs and he was very kind and and responded and pointed me in the right direction so thank you very good 
finally, this brings me to aesthetics for the North American Giant Millipede. I give them a 9 out of 10. I love them so much. <laughs> They're so perfect. Okay, first of all, they're round. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Everything about them is perfectly shaped. And then they have a cute face. Like, and then when they're walking, that wave motion of the mm -hmm. legs is just hypnotic. It looks great. It ties the look together. It's like the land version of the cuttlefish movement. It is just like that. Mm -hmm. It's and it just has a very like calming effect. I really like videos of millipedes walking that's like set to music. I love those. <laughs> those make me happy. Wrapping up with some miscellaneous information, I want to talk a little bit about their role in the ecosystem as detritivores. When I say detritivore, I mean that they eat dead things. Right. They eat dead plants, decaying wood. Maybe a tree has fallen over and the log is rotting. Millipede comes along and chomps that they have these huge appetites so they're really really good at clearing out this dead and decaying plant matter so this is really helpful for the environment mm -hmm. because it breaks up the materials so say you have a big log that's rotting millipede comes along chomps a bunch of it this breaks it up so there's more surface area available for things like fungus and bacteria and oh, things yeah. like that that can move into that area and that really speeds up the decomposition process and then allows like the soil and everything to get more enriched with nutrients and it just makes everything healthier. They're also pooping out what is essentially compost. Mm -hmm. So they take in dead stuff, they poop out nutrients, yeah. which is just really good for helping new plants grow. And then when new plants grow, you know, you, ha you just have more life and more, more animals can grow. So it just, I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that enough attention is paid to the decomposers and how oh, yeah. important they are to an ecosystem. They're really, really important. Cause I, I want to say there was a point in, Millions of years ago where, you know, we, we had all this new flora, but we didn't yet have the things that would decay the flora, right? So, like, the know. bacteria and the other things that would break down. I don't know. Like, I, th I would have thought it would have been the other way around. I want to say I've read about that somewhere. Because, like, isopods have been around longer than, like, anything. I'm talking about, like, the advent of trees. Oh. <laughs> like, when those started coming around, we didn't yet have... Oh, like on land. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, we didn't yet have the bacteria or the animals that, that would break it down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Paleontology is unfortunately not my strong suit, so I'm just going to believe you. I hope that was something I actually read and didn't just fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, the last thing I wanted to say about millipedes is that they may... If you live where these millipedes are found, they may make their way into your home um, in search of food or moisture. They cannot hurt you. So you really don't need to freak out about it. It's not that big a deal. They literally are physically incapable of hurting you unless you maybe have an allergy to their secretions or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're also really likely to, like, if they do make it inside your house, they're probably going to die like quickly because they need such a high humidity and such such high moisture that if they're inside your house, they're not going to get enough moisture and they're going to dry out and die. If you find lots of them in your house and they have started reproducing in your house, then there are like a few things you can do to prevent them from coming in. So you can store any, if you keep like mulch or wood or anything that they could eat, just try to store that up and away from the ground where they cannot reach it. 
and also just try to keep your air can like keep everything dry so yeah. make sure that you have like you can put in a dehumidifier or you know just make sure that there's no standing water or anything like that like make sure that you keep everything dry enough that they can't really yeah. thrive there so for, for those of us in the hotter portions of the country we're used to running our air conditionings fairly often which central ac acts as a dehumidifier so that, that one thing we got going for us yeah we don't really we've i've never seen a millipede in the house yeah we get lots of centipedes but no millipedes so far so yeah they're really not that big a deal like if you see one you can literally just pick it up and put it outside it's not that big a deal yeah provide moisture then evict <laughs> they're fine they're fine you just put them outside it's not that big a deal i love millipedes like i said earlier i have very many fond memories of playing with them and picking them up and watching them crawl on my arm and i'm sure they didn't really care for that very much <laughs> that i was doing that but yeah that's the north american giant millipede all right well thanks honey you're welcome well thank you everybody who's been listening and joining us you guys really make this show worth doing I love y'all. If you want to come hang out with us in the social media digital zone, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we're on Instagram. So come hang out with us there. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us talk about, you can submit those to us. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com, or you can like tweet at us or, or whatever. And finally, I want to thank Louis Zong for letting us use his track Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. It contributes so much to the vibe. For sure. That's all. Thanks for listening to our poop-heavy episode. Yeah, this is <laughs> a regular poop cast. I like it. Maybe we'll talk about more poop in the future. Perhaps, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.